Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. From New York City for our audience worldwide and for our audience on TV and on radio, I'm pleased to say that joining us now is Marty Walsh, the U.S. Secretary of Labor. Secretary Walsh, great to catch up, sir. Let's just start with this payrolls report this morning. An upside surprise. We need to see more numbers like this. Do you have the confidence we will? I think we will. You know, 850,000 job gain in one month is a really good number, good solid number. Uh, we've seen more people looking for work. We've seen growth in hospitality, leisure, restaurants. Uh, you know, so, so it shows that President Biden's economic plan certainly is working, the American Rescue Plan, the investment, and in, in this vaccine program. Uh, and we just need to continue to get people vaccinated and continue to build confidence and, and get more people back to work. Some Republican governors, in fact, many of them, as you know, don't think this plan is working. They think it's holding back this labor market, or at least aspects of it. Secretary Walsh, what do you think happens when the additional unemployment insurance expires in September? Well, I think what we're seeing right now is in, in those states that have been threatened to cut back the unemployment insurance or where they have cut back unemployment insurance, we're not seeing any additional people get going into the job market. The numbers don't dictate that. But I do think by the time September comes around, uh, when the unemployment rate uh, extra benefit expires, uh, we're, we're seeing it now. In, in the last five months since President Biden's been president, we've had, he's averaged 600,000 new jobs per month. As we continue to move towards the end of the pandemic or get, towards, get through the pandemic, we're seeing more people going back to work, more confidence, we're seeing more people traveling. So I, I think it has nothing to do with the $300 and everything to do with President Biden's economic plan. Governor Parson of Missouri said it's worsened the workforce issues we are facing. Secretary Walsh, I spoke to you last time and we had a discussion about whether you'd talk to these Republican governors. Have you done that? I haven't talked to any Republican governors, but I've been talking to plenty of legislators and I've been around the country. I was in Indiana last month, uh, last week, I should say. Uh, and that's one of the states that cut back on the unemployment benefits. And I talked to people on the ground. I happened to be at, at a vaccination site. So uh, there was a line of people getting vaccinated. Uh, and, and there's lots of people that want to go back to work. And, and some of the folks I spoke to that were, were, were challenged with getting back to work, one of the issues was education and child care. They didn't have a place for their kids to be. So they, they were home. So I am traveling around the country uh, to all, different states all across America. And I'm talking to the people on the ground because those are the folks that have the information on what I want to hear. So, Marty, Secretary Walsh, do you think this is very much a childcare issue and would you anticipate things like the female participation rate to really start picking up in September is that the stress test for what you're saying well I think we'll see more people participating in September because school is going back to work but but again this month in the month of June we saw 850,000 American workers get back into the workforce that's a good solid number and we want to continue that momentum as we move forward here in the months of July and August and September. So I'm hopeful as we continue to, to, to push the, the Biden economic plan, push the vaccines, uh, we, we're going to see more and more Americans back to work. The Federal Reserve seems to believe that they can get the participation rate back to where it was, get the employment to population ratio back to where it was, that perhaps there won't be this kind of deep scarring that leads to huge structural change. Do you share that confidence? I mean, I think we. I mean, I think it's important upon us to, to aim for that. We want we want to get to the goals 
pre-pandemic, and actually we want to be better than that. We want to get the unemployment rate and people back to work uh, at, low, at higher numbers, lower unemployment rate, lower people looking for work uh, as we get continue out of this pandemic. Stephanie Walsh, I want to finish on something just a little bit personal, if you'll allow me to, but I think many other people are in my position. Some of my colleagues are going to go on a vacation over the next several weeks and they'll go to Europe and they'll fly straight back into the United States with no problems whatsoever. I myself will miss my father's funeral on Tuesday and won't be able to fly back at all because I don't have a green card and I'm not an American resident, but I do have a permit to work here. Are you guys going to do anything about this stuff? We have to. Uh, you know, I, 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 first of all, I, my, my heart goes out to you and your family for your loss. Uh, you know, my family's from Ireland originally. Uh, you know, I've had plenty of people, I know plenty of people in America that can't go home. I know a young man that his father died a few years ago in the village my mother was from. Uh, he couldn't go home to his father's funeral. He didn't have a green card. Uh, this is something that, that, that we, we need to address uh, in Congress. Congress needs to take up an immigration bill. They need to look at this. They need to take care of these issues. Uh, it's devastating to many families. We have good people in this country uh, that are undocumented, that are working hard, raising a family. Their children are American citizens, and they can't get a pathway to citizenship. That's something that has to change. Now, Secretary Walsh, you've taken it to Congress, and you've taken it to a different subject. I'm talking about travel restrictions. You're in charge of them. The administration is in charge of them. The Delta I'm virus, the, the Delta variant does not know, identify whether someone has a green card or if someone's a tourist or if they have a work permit. These travel restrictions to so many people, so many people that still work in this country don't make sense. And I think we're all trying to oh, work I, out when they're going to be fixed. I misunderstood what you said. I thought sure. you said you couldn't go back because you didn't have the ability to fly back because you don't have a green card. I apologize No, for I that. can't fly back because I don't have a green card and your travel restrictions prevent me from doing so. Okay, I'm sorry, I apologize, I didn't know that. Uh, I actually would have to look into that. I don't have a, enough information right now uh, to answer that question correctly, but I will look into it and I will get you an answer. Well, I hope so, and maybe you and I could talk offline about it. Secretary Walsh, I, I would appreciate your time, sir. I know my team's very busy over in Massachusetts preparing for the Boston pubs. I myself have never been. Do you suggest I should go this weekend? Uh, I go to, Boston's a great city. Uh, you, you, Bloomberg is a sponsor. You should get there. It's a, if you can get there, it's a beautiful city uh, and lots of great restaurants and, and lots of great fun in, in the city of Boston. Well, I know it's a city that means a lot to you. Secretary Walsh, appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. The U.S. Thank Labor you. Secretary on radio and TV from the White House. Jeffrey Rosenberg doesn't care about the VIX. He's at BlackRock portfolio manager of their systematic multi-strategy fund, and he is systematically seeing curve flattening the last number of days, perhaps with a view to this jobs report. Jeff Rosenberg, let's start right away with a linkage of a better American employment to a flattening yield curve. Why? Yeah, that, that's a great point, Tom. That was what I was going to highlight. Interesting market reaction. You know, initially, you, you, you certainly saw that flattening. It's continuing here. You know, the report is pretty much on the screws in terms of market expectations. I think Mike hit the, the kind of surprising piece uh, right on the head with uh, the unemployment rate higher. Uh, good news, reflection of more people coming back into the labor market. You know, the positive report in the curve flattening, you know, it reminds me of, of what we saw after the FOMC, which is that the good news brings forward the idea of earlier 
possible increases in interest rates. We saw that after the dot plot. And I think you're seeing a little bit of market reaction on that again here. I wouldn't overstate it. It's, uh, you know, these are small moves. But if we're looking for some kind of message, it's that, you know, continued progress on the reopening, on the strength of the economy is raising expectations here that the Fed's going to raise rates perhaps faster than what the market had been pricing in. And that's getting you to a curve flattening where the bulk of the increases in the front end of the curve, and then longer term interest rates, which have already priced in a fair amount of relative value, you know, potentially signaling here that that's going to, you know, look through to the slowdown after the surge of the economic activity uh, passes from the from the fiscal stimulus. So I think that's what the curve flattening is, kind of the main message from the markets today. It's tough to be in this bond market right now, Jeff. Q1 is where we saw the peak of the 10-year yield at the end of March. It's where the yield curve peaked too, and we saw break-evens peak potentially back in May. So the curve is flatter, and we've had calls on this program of 10s getting back to 2%, Jeff. How difficult would it be for 10s to get back to 2%? Well, that would be a you know that would be a, a pretty significant reversal. Um, I, I think you're highlighting really the the important point that we peaked in terms of the reflationary narrative. There was a it was kind of a double peak. There was a March, then it kind of flattened out, and then mid May we saw it again, and. In that period, since then, we've basically been pushing downward this reflation narrative out of the bond market. Uh, and it's really quite notable. The longer end forwards have been falling. As you mentioned, inflation expectations, you know, outside of kind of the impact of energy really stopped rising. And it's a reflection of kind of buy the rumor, sell the news. That is, the markets were moving well ahead of the economic data. The economic data has, has kind of borne that out. But without kind of the breakout of the inflation outside of this transitory story, you know, look at something that came out earlier this week, the Dallas trimmed Fed, uh, trimmed mean measures of, of inflation. You know, they're, they're continuing to basically show that the story of transitory inflation is holding up. And so you can't really get further curve steepening, further inflation expectations until we see, you know, what we're seeing in some of the survey data, you know, the price pressures building pass through into a broader array of, uh, of, of prices outside of the pandemic related stories that we've heard so much about. That's still, you know, going to be the future. And until then, you know, the curves are uh, and, and market pricing are really starting to price out some of this reflation story. I will say in the last couple of minutes, we've faded some of that flattening in the Treasury curve, just a little bit, particularly at the long end. We've given some of that move up. For people just tuning in, it's an upside surprise. 850K, the median estimate was 720. That's what we want to see. Wages, 3.6%, in line with expectations, a pickup from the previous month. That is what we want to see. And your equity market, if you're bullish, this is what you want to see. Another 10 points higher on the S&P, potentially a seventh day of gains. Jeff Rosenberg, I got 3.12 million jobs. That's with revisions formed in 2001. That's a slow motion path to 10, 11, 12 million jobs to fully employed America. How does BlackRock frame the goal of fully employed America to all the summer emotions of Fed policy, taper tantrum, Jackson Hole, and what the yield market does? I mean, how do you frame that out, that x-axis? Yeah, the, the key is that the Fed has kind of moved its dual objectives towards more favoring of the employment objective relative to the inflation expectations and, and, and the inflation objective. And so while in past cycles, 
this kind of full employment might have led to preemptive Fed tightening. The movement towards flexible average inflation targeting is really a wholesale change in how the market reacts to the payroll figures uh, with respect to interest rate expectations. Now, that doesn't mean that they're never going to raise interest rates, and that's part of the earlier conversation, what followed to the dots. But what it means is that the kind of the way we hung on every payroll report is not quite the same as it was when we were kind of growing up. And, and, and that's because we've missed on inflation for so long that the Fed is really focused on achieving its inflation target. And they're not going to jump the gun when it comes to full employment. They're going to let the labor market run hot. And today is another piece of evidence that that's working, that strategy is working, the labor market is is improving, and that's what they want to see. The risk, of course, you know, what everybody's worried about is, is you know, what happens if, if you let the inflation genie out of the bottle? And Powell and, and, and the Fed policymakers have been very clear that they're willing to take that risk because the last 10 years, the post-global financial crisis, they've missed on inflation. Inflation has been too low. So yeah. we've tilted the axes here, and it's an important change when we read the, the payroll reports. Jeff, that's what the Fed says, that they are willing to look past near-term inflation, that they want this economy to run hot, that they are not that concerned about runaway inflation. Is your message from the market that the market doesn't believe them because they believe still, as Priya Misra was saying, at least priced in, and that is sort of the flattening in the yield curve, that there will be a policy error, that they will taper and then hike rates too soon? Is the market misreading what the Fed is saying? You know, I, I can understand how a little bit you might interpret the yield curve flattening uh, that way. That I, I think it would overstate how much of a concern there is right now on, on the policy error of too fast of tightening. I think right now, mostly the read from the market is that they price in the transitory story. And, and perhaps the market got a little ahead of itself when it came to the reflationary story. You've got some technicals and, and trading and momentum strategies, and that's a little bit behind the flattening as well. Uh, but mostly when you look at kind of longer term forward prices of inflation expectations, they're kind of right on the screws yeah. of the transitory story, just above 2%. And I think so far that's been you know validated by the data. It's still to be seen long term whether it will be, but that's where the right. markets are at. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much. The BlackRock uh, this morning. Priya Misra joins us now, TD Securities Global Head of Race Strategy. Priya, what a start where we open the show, and I know you're on the same page. Yields and the behaviour and how markets are responding to economic data. Yesterday, a nice case study. What explains it? I think it's the market pricing in a more hawkish reaction function, frankly. I mean, if you look at uh, long and inflation expectations, they've declined. The market's taken the terminal rate of the hiking cycle and lowered that. We were pricing in 2% at the end point of the hiking cycle in March it's pricing in less than one and a half percent. So the front end, I, th I think the market's telling you that uh, the Fed is going to be forced into hiking for some reason, perhaps inflation, and that the, the economy can't handle it, which is why the hiking cycle will be cut short and it could potentially you mm -hmm. know, slow down growth going forward. That's why that yield curve has been flattening. And I think it's a misinterpretation of that June FOMC. I think there was a lot of confusion, huge market reaction on the back of that meeting. I don't think it was a change reaction function. I think it was an acknowledgement mm -hmm. of the upside risks out here. But I think the market sort of running with 
a more hawkish reaction function, and perhaps uh, that the Fed's commitment to that FAIT approach is is weaker. Priya, does this jobs report adjust the taper talk or adjust the guesstimates of what we'll see at Jackson Hole? I think both. I mean, they are sort of linked because, you know, we know that the Fed has sort of opened the door now. They are discuss- They are at least talking about talking about tapering. So now I would argue every data point now is going to be a market event. I think, you know, because they've put the market on notice. So whether it's Jackson Hole, if you get a really strong number, if we see high wages, I think the market's going to say, OK, maybe Jackson Hole or the July Fed, the Fed might signal tapering sooner. And the issue is uh, tapering and the first hike are linked. I mean, you know, what's the time period between the end of tapering and hiking? Some Fed officials think it's a couple of months. Others think it's it's a year out. We don't know that time period. Um, and that's why I think if the tapering time frame moves sooner, based on today's number, I think that hiking timing and the hiking pace could also increase. So it could be another flattening reaction, which will seem a little bizarre if the, if, if the data is good. And we really need to see how the Fed pushes back. Do they actually say that they, they want to see the supply chain disruptions? And, you know, even in the labor market, I would argue there's a lot of frictions and they'd want to at least wait until September before they can, you know, sort of take the victory lap. So just to take the flip side of this, Priya, that means that if it's a disappointment on the number that you could see yield curves steepening. I do think so. Yeah, I think that front end is going to push out the timing of the first hike to potentially early 2023, mid 2023. And the long end, then maybe the reflation trade comes back. It seems a little counterintuitive, but I would say price action in the last couple of weeks is symptomatic of a reaction function shift, not economic data, which is why we're getting weird reactions, I would argue, to economic data. So, yeah, I think a weaker number pins the front end a little bit more and the long end, then inflation risk can start to rise in the long end. If you can, just reiterate your year end on a 10-year now. What is it? We're looking for 2% um, <clears throat> on, on the 10-year because we're, we're looking for the Fed by December to actually announce tapering. Now, it's a long way from hiking. Our hiking call is much further out, so you can probably tell why I like the steepener. I think the bar to hike for the Fed is much higher. They want an inclusive recovery. They want inflation to persistently, you know, be or, or, or at a sustained basis be at 2% overshoot. So, I th- but, but, you know, the, the tapering bar is not that high. So the reason I've got this higher um, rates in, in, in the long end is, is this idea that the Fed will taper. We have a ton of treasury supply that we have to take down. So to attract that marginal buyer, both real rates as well as inflation expectations will need to rise. Priya, thank you. Good to catch up with you on Payrolls Friday. Priya Misra there of TD Securities. Paul Sweeney and I look in awe at the uh, survey function for non-farm payrolls and I believe last month there were 4,322 economists <laughs> exactly. with an opinion. How about we talk to somebody, Paul, who nailed it? Who absolutely nailed it. Tiffany Wilding, she was looking for 850,000 uh, jobs and change in the non-farm payrolls. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. <laughs> Tiffany Wilding, PIMCO Chief U.S. Economist. Tiffany, thanks so much for joining us. I usually use a dartboard and a dart, but you obviously use some more academic rigor here. Give us your thoughts on uh, this June payroll number. Um, you know, well, I, I guess I have to say that, you know, this was, I think, overall a mixed report. Um, you know, so even though non-farm payrolls, 850K, they were stronger, you know, our, our you know, we, we do have various models that we use. The high-frequency data uh, that we've gotten post-pandemic, we found is actually a very useful input to kind of see some of the, the fluctuations in the economy. And our models were pointing to an acceleration this time, um, you know, in addition to um, kind of some seasonal noise around education payrolls. And I think those were the two things that really 
really boosted this report. That's good news, of course, but um, you know that's the establishment survey. I don't want to get too wonky here, but if you look at the other survey that's included in this report, uh, you know what they call the CPS or the current population survey, it was actually much weaker. So employment was little changed in that report. We actually oh. had the unemployment rate tick up. Um, so I think that you know overall, it, you, you kind of have to still take these reports with a little bit of grain of salt, um, you know, because they can be noisy yeah. from month to month. Our Rickadonna sharply partitions bartenders and waitresses, restaurants, service, whatever it's called officially, with yeah. the rest of the American economy. Do you make the same demarcation? Yeah, I actually do think it's important right now just because this um, this pandemic has produced a very uneven recovery. Um, and that's uneven, you know, across regions as well as across sectors, as you suggest. You know, and I, I do think that there's, you know, a kind of an uneven recovery happening. You're seeing more people come back to the leisure and hospitality sector. Of course, that's driving things at the same time. You know, wages are also accelerating um, more so in that sector than other sectors. You know, so I really think you have to um, you, you sort of have to disentangle, you know, the anecdotes and what's happening in, in that particular sector from kind of the aggregate in the labor market. You know, and I think although things do look a little bit tighter, labor markets do, you know, look a little bit tighter in, in that uh, leisure and hospitality sector. There obviously is a lot of anecdotes around labor scarcity. I think, you know, you look in aggregate across the labor market, you know, we still have a lot of people that, you know, that are looking for jobs or that are out of work. Is there anything in this report, Tiffany, to cause the Federal Reserve and Fed Chairman Powell to perhaps think differently about their strategic direct direction in terms of, you know, kind of laying low here and as it relates to tapering and or raising rates? No. And I mean, I think the reason is, is because you can kind of you can kind of support your narrative either way with this report. Right? So, you know, as I mentioned, on the one hand, the, the kind of headline number, the change in payrolls was obviously very good. So I'm sure the, you know, the quote, more hawkish members of the committee, the people that want to hike rates a little bit earlier, you know, they want get, to get, get tapering of the bond purchases uh, to happen a little bit earlier, they'll probably focus on, on that headline number. You know, whereas as the folks on the committee that, you know, are, are think it's maybe a little bit better still to wait, they're looking more for a December taper um, you know, in a 2023 rate hike or probably looking at this report, also saying this is consistent with our view that, you know, we do have a little bit of room here uh, before we need to tighten. So, so, Tiffany, as we look at the wages, I mean, again, up 3.6% in line with expectation. Is there a risk in your outlook for meaningful wage inflation to find its way into this economy? I mean, look, we, we certainly think it's possible. So I, I think that, um, you know, I think that there's, you know, I mentioned, you know, this, these issues kind of around uh, labor scarcity that we're hearing in certain sectors. You know, there's a lot of what I would call right now labor market frictions. Uh, you know, and obviously they've been well highlighted uh, by people. Um, you know, the unemployment benefits, which could be causing some disincentive to work. You have uh, school disruptions, which could be having, you know, uh, bringing people out of the labor force because they have to uh, take care of kids. And then, and then obviously you just have anxiety still. Uh, around COVID, you know, we think those are kind of temporary factors and they will fade. Uh, so you have labor supply that probably will meet labor demand this year that what both, you know, both will be strong. But next year, I think, is really the question on, on, on really the tightness of the labor market, you know, and how much kind of labor supply can, can meet demand. And the reason why I say that is because you had a lot of people retire as a result of this pandemic. So really the question is, is do prime age people, um, do they really start to come back to the labor market, uh, you know, in kind of full force next year? 
last year. And I think there's, you know, there's a, there's some question around that. Okay. So I'm in PIMCO and I'm running four year paper across three sectors. Mm -hmm. That's my lowly job. <laughs> I have to share a Bloomberg. I'm so small. I can't get one. I'm going to turn to Tiffany Wilding and say, you've got a crystal ball in the next year. Do I mean, the bond people are trying to get to what, Paul? August 1st? <laughs> exactly. You know, September 1. What's, what's your, what's, <coughs> excuse me, what's your longest view out, Tiffany? I mean, can you like even frame out to fourth quarter or Q1 <laughs> of next year? Well, you know, so we do we do what we call cyclical forecasting, right? Which is which is kind of like a now to eighteen months out kind of window. You still doing you know, that? You're you're yeah. in this historic. None none of what we're talking about is in the textbooks. Right. You're trying to look out eighteen months. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's absolutely fair. That we, there's a there's a very high degree of uncertainty right now, you know. And, and I would say that the, you know, the kind of the the short term, the high frequency data that we're getting, you know, there's there's uncertainty there as well because it's you know it's obviously very noisy statistics that we have to deal with because of of this pandemic. So, you know, there's I do think there's a lot of uncertainty out there, but we you know we do try our best to try to you know uh, get the okay. disentangle that signal from the noise to to try to um, have some okay. sort of anchor for people. GDP 2020. GDP 2022. What does Le Ball Christel show? <laughs> So you know we're so we're still looking for seven percent growth this year, uh, yeah. and for that to, to sort of settle back down to kind of three to three and a half next year. You know, but I would say that the data that is kind of coming in more recently would actually suggest maybe there's some downside risk to our seven percent growth forecast, yeah. um, and that's really because it looks like higher prices are starting to actually eat into, and some of these uh, supply bottlenecks are really starting into eating into real growth. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, maybe although nominal growth can can still be as strong as we predict. That might be more on the price side than the than the real side. There we go. Um, yeah. So, but you know, I think mm -hmm. ultimately the you know the conclusion, at least in our minds, is is that we are probably seeing yeah. some inflection points right now in growth right. as well as inflation. We've gotten this really big run up in acceleration as a result of fiscal policies and and everything else right. and the reopening of the economy, and that's probably going to start to decelerate right. uh, going into the back half yeah. of the year and next year. So I think those inflection yeah. points and pinpointing those are are just as important as the you know trying to yeah. figure out what the level is. It's Tiffany on a Friday. If you do differential calculus, you're gone. See ya. <laughs> Tiffany Wilding of PIMCO. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.